Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You're listening to a clip from the Hong Kong airport earlier this month. Millions of people have been marching in the streets of Hong Kong for months. They are protesting a bill that would allow extraditions to mainland China. Even with the rain torrential at times, it's not stopping all of these protesters from rallying. They are angry and they are committed to making their voices heard by the government. The protests have recently morphed into something greater, a broad defense of the territory's autonomy from Beijing. And this is Jammu and Kashmir, the Muslim-majority state in the north of India. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has ended Kashmir's independent status and imprisoned its politicians. Just yesterday, this raid in Mississippi, where they rounded up 680 people. And right here in the U.S., nearly 700 workers were arrested earlier this month in Mississippi for working illegally in the plants that provide the chicken that goes on your table. And this serves as a very good deterrent. Their crime? They are some of the 11 million people living in the United States illegally. Many have done so for more than a decade. They may get in, although we're being very tough, but they may get in. But it doesn't matter because they're going out. My colleague Josh Keating looks at these headlines, Hong Kong, Kashmir, Mississippi, and thinks those are all connected. Can you just summarize to me what what links those things together? You know, I, I think that they're talking about building up their borders and keeping other people out and, you know, becoming much more rigid in how they define citizenship for the people who live in their territory. Josh is Slate's international editor, which means he covers the 193 blobs on the map and how the people who run some of the biggest, most important blobs are trying to make the real world look as neatly divided as the map. This idea that uh, the world is these neat territorial units and all the people who live within those units are citizens of that country, that kind of legibility uh, may not exist anymore. And, you know, what what I think we're seeing in several countries that have sort of very nationalist inclined governments is they're trying to stamp out ambiguity. Stamp out ambiguity. That is the through line in an essay Josh wrote for Slate this week, which threads together a bunch of August headlines. When I read it, I felt like all this stuff I had been reading about had snapped into place, into one theory of what's going on right now. A certain amount of legal ambiguity, Keating writes, has its uses. The world is messy. It has porous borders and self-ruling minorities and autonomous zones. Trump, Modi, Xi Jinping, they're trying to change that. In the end, Josh thinks, this crackdown on ambiguity might actually make the world a crazier place. I'm Henry Grabar, stepping up to the mic for Mary Harris. This is What Next. Don't touch that phone.
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Josh comes across stories from all over the world. One story two weeks back stuck in his mind. I was, uh, I've been in the United States since six months old, you know, and, and just two and a half weeks It was the story of Jimmy Aldaoud. Born in Greece to an Iraqi Christian family, Aldaoud was brought to Michigan as a baby. Earlier this year, he was deported. He had a criminal record, but he also had a host of health problems, including schizophrenia and diabetes. And he was deported from the U.S. to Iraq, a country he had never been to in his life. I begged them, I said, please, I've never seen that country, I've never been there. However, they forced me, I'm here now, and, and I don't understand the language, anything, I've been sleeping in the Jimmy Aldaoud died on the streets of Baghdad only two months after he was deported. The cause, his family believes, was a lack of insulin. Josh edited a story that ran in Slate about Jimmy's death, and it reminded him of a reporting trip he took a few years back, a trip that took him to Haiti. You talked to Haitians who were in the midst of being basically forcibly expelled from the Dominican Republic. You have this quote from this woman, Rose Hippolyte, a 52-year-old, who says, I was working with three other friends and the police came and put us in a car. I asked them what was going on and they said, Haitian devil, go to your country. Uh, you start your, your piece that you published this week by, by recounting, by remembering this visit that you took to Haiti. Why? Well, I just remember at the time that it felt so absurd. I mean, this these were people who had either come to the Dominican Republic as children. They, you know, maybe had faint memories of it. Uh, some younger people had never been there at all. And one year, because of a Supreme Court decision in the Dominican Republic, they were stripped of their citizenship and and, and the government began forcibly deporting them. And it, it just seemed, um, you know, not only cruel, but, but just the absurdity at the time that... Uh, that these lifelong residents of a country would be suddenly treated as foreigners overnight. Now, you know, looking back on it, it's it seems like almost a preview of things to come. Um, you know, we see similar cases to this happening in India and Man- Myanmar and, you know, to a certain extent in the United States as well. For Josh, there's a common thread between the way the Dominican government came down on its Haitian residents and the way mainland China is trying to rule over Hong Kong. It's a desire to bring order to communities that haven't traditionally been so easy to classify. You know, if you look at what's happening in Hong Kong, this is a place that under what's called the one country, two systems, it's been part of China, but not really part of China. It's had its own laws. It's been able to maintain a kind of functioning semi-democracy since the handover from British colonialism in 1997. And now we're seeing, you know, the government of China in Beijing kind of gradually trying to chip away at Hong Kong's autonomy with the eventual goal of sort of fully reunifying Hong Kong into the rest of China in, uh, in 2047s when it's due to happen. And this is what's you know, prompted the pushback we see uh, and, and these protests we've seen over the last few weeks. So this is kind of ending territorial ambiguity. 
And then you see in several places there are populations that are ambiguous. And you know, example of that could be in the U.S. We have this large population of undocumented immigrants, um, and you know, these are people who are not legally citizens of the United States. Uh, they're technically not allowed to be here, but you know, successive administrations have realized it's just sort of legally and practically and economically uh, impractical to remove these populations and have kind of uh, treated it as maybe not an ideal fact, but, you know, something we're going to live with that we have uh, this population. And now we're seeing uh, the Trump administration move to more aggressively uh, deport these people and, and, you know, end that ambiguous status and make the country more hostile for this population. It sounds like in many cases we're talking about places where borders were drawn in the post-colonial period and populations were left on one side of a border or another or uh, stipulations were put in place to protect various elements of a colonial society as in the Hong Kong case. And those kind of peculiarities have persisted for decades. Often, I think you make the case to the benefit of everyone. It can be, yeah. I mean, uh, the anthropologist James Scott, who I cite in the piece, has this idea that states seek legibility. Basically, they want resources and people to be sort of neat and ordered so that they're, you know, visible to the state. And they don't like uh, anom- anomalous populations, be they, you know, nomadic populations or, you know, tribal governments with sovereignty or undocumented migrants or regions with special political status that governments don't like having uh, these kind of exceptions to the rules within their territory. But, you know, there are cases, especially in international relations, where uh, ambiguity can be kind of useful. I mean, you can look at Taiwan. Uh, Since 1979, the U.S. and every country in the world is, uh, well, not every country, but most countries in the world have not formally recognized Taiwan's independence. You know, technically speaking, uh, the U.S. recognizes Taiwan as part of China. That being said, you know, the U.S. just approved the largest arms sale to Taiwan uh, and maintains what's basically an embassy there. They call it the American Institute in Taiwan, but it's um, in, you know, for all intents and purposes, a an embassy. And, you know, this is arrangement is kind of hypocritical and weird, but it's also allowed Taiwan to maintain its political independence and, and develop into a democracy, uh, while at the same time it avoided provoking what could be a disastrous showdown between the U.S. and China. So, you know, that that's a case you could point to where I think ambiguity has actually served everyone concerned pretty well. Another case where loosening things up worked out, the European Union. Well, to a point, Brexit and all that. Yeah, the European Union is, is a rare example of governments embracing ambiguity. It doesn't happen too often, but, you know, these, these are countries still maintain that they are independent countries, but they've agreed to open their borders. In some cases, they share a currency. Uh, They've delegated certain regulatory functions to a multinational body. So you do have this kind of mix of that they've pooled, they have actually given up a certain amount of their sovereignty. Um, And, you know, we've obviously seen the pushback to that uh, in Britain and several other countries in the last few years. But I think if you want to see the advantage of this, advantages of it, you can look at Northern Ireland. I mean, that's a place where I think membership in the European Union has benefited both sides by kind of making that border less salient. I mean, if it people in Northern Ireland may still have a preference over whether they're ruled from London 
or from Dublin, but you know, in an EU world where that border doesn't really matter, where people and goods can cross freely, uh, it, it's just sort of less relevant than it used to be. And I think between that and devolving you know, certain uh, political functions to uh, the government in Belfast, as problematic as that has been, um, I, I think that it has, the EU membership has made the current status quo sort of acceptable for for Catholics in Northern Ireland. And now with Brexit, where you see that we, we're, we're going to see, we don't know how we're going to see it quite yet, but in some fashion, we're likely to see Britain's departure from the European Union. And there's a good chance now that um, that could result in a hard border between the Republic and Northern Ireland. And if, if that happens, uh, a lot of people are worried that this could provoke uh, a return to the kind of sectarian violence that uh, that region has been able to leave behind. So this, this strikes me as um, su- surprising because I, I grew up thinking that borders were supposed to matter less now, that the world was becoming more connected, and not only that it was becoming easier uh, for people to move around, but that the very concept of the, the state with its borders seemed less and less important because capital moves so easily between places, so much work took place, work could take place so easily across borders, um, outsourcing digital connections between places. It just seemed like the whole idea of drawing these lines seemed kind of arbitrary. And you write that, that um, it simply matters less than it used to, whether people are ruled from Dublin or from London. And yet across the world, we see this retrenchment and this um, this vision of, of 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 newly strengthened borders, even in in places like Eastern Europe, where twenty years ago they were trying to tear them down. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny that reading the Communist Manifesto. At one point, it was you know, uh, it, it was the left that was predicting a future where the the state would wither away and um, borders would become meaningless. And then after the Cold War, it was sort of capitalists, neoliberal capitalists, if you want to put it that way, who kind of embraced this idea that borders were going to matter less. And because of trade and the internet and the move, more movement of people and communication. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think obviously we've seen a backlash to that uh, in, you know, as as President Trump says, in, in his view, if you don't have borders, you don't have a country. Um, he sees borders as kind of the definition of what makes a country a country. And and that flies in the face of the attitude behind projects like the European Union, which which um, is premised on the idea that uh, countries can open their borders and share certain aspects of sovereignty and still maintain uh, some form of national identity. Yeah. So I was, you know, when I read your piece, I had to look up a quote from Thomas Friedman, course to confront you with during this interview (laughs) and he wrote when the world is flat came out he wrote when the world is flat you can innovate without having to emigrate the main objective in that era meaning the cold war was building a strong state and the main objective in this era is building strong individuals and you look at places like russia reasserting its sovereignty in the crimea or uh, india in in kashmir or china in hong kong and you'd have to say that building a strong state still seems to be the goal. Yeah, I, I'd say that's true. And it, it's funny if you look at President Trump's rhetoric, the way he talks about this. I mean, 
It, there's often this idea of countries sending us people. Uh, when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems. It's coming from all over South and Latin America, and it's coming probably, probably from the Middle East. He talks about, uh, you know, wanting governments in Central America to shut off the flow of people. And it's always this idea that that uh, people are this kind of abstract force that uh, states control, that they they send to each other or they, they cut off like, like, as if it's, you know, a river that you're damming or rerouting or something. The sense that it's, you know, these are individual people making choices either for you know, their own safety or for economic reasons that never quite enters it, enters into um, the kind of rhetoric that he uses. So it, I think you you do sometimes have a kind of replacement of, you know, language of individualism with a kind of state-centered way of talking about this, which is, you know, maybe maybe ironic for, for the American right, which has traditionally, you know, put a big premium on individual choices. One other thing you get to at the end is the idea that we are going to be seeing more and more migration, already are, um, as a response to the pressures of climate change, which raises the question of whether we need to rethink ideas of citizenship. And what do you mean when you say redefine notions of, of citizenship? What does that mean? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I quote Hannah Arendt in the piece who called, you know, who referred to citizenship in the modern world as the right to have rights, that usually it's uh, the country whose name is stamped on your passport is the one responsible for guaranteeing your civil and political and human rights. You know, now with the levels of migration we're seeing, there are uh, large populations of children being born into refugee populations who are, you know, aren't eligible for citizenship in the countries where they're born or in the uh, countries where their parents came from. Uh, so stateless people, and th that's a growing population, is going to pose a challenge to the year to years to come. I think that you know we will likely be seeing even higher levels of migration with climate change. I, I write in the book Invisible Countries about you know certain countries, especially Pacific Islands, whose very existence is threatened by climate change. They may no longer be able to exist as sovereign entities. So I think we may, this idea that uh, the world is these neat territorial units and all the people who live within those units are citizens of that country, that kind of legibility uh, may not exist anymore. And I, I think that we may need to come up with uh, some other ideas for how people can be guaranteed the right to have rights that um, maybe is not just contingent on the physical space that they're born within and where their parents were born. Um, I don't really know what that would look like, and I don't really see a lot of energy being devoted to thinking about it. It seems that um, the momentum is all in the opposite way into defining what citizenship means even more narrowly. Rich people, of course, are more free than ever to cross borders, buying property and passports. But many of the world's poor and other outcasts like the abandoned children of ISIS fighters, or refugees from countries made uninhabitable by climate change, increasingly find themselves in a world that does not want them. It's almost like sort of bureaucratic nationalism that um, when you can use rules to deny people citizenship, when you combine that with the kind of ethnic nationalism you see in many countries now, it becomes a very dangerous thing because 
you're using kind of uh, bureaucracy to deny citizenship and therefore deny human rights to people you deem undesirable. And uh, when you have governments in this way of ethnic nationalism or racism, then um, it's going to be marginalized and the weakest people uh, who suffer the most from that. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Josh Keating covers the world for Slate. And that's the show. If you were into it, please drop me or Josh a note. We're on Twitter. I'm at Henry Grabar, and he's at Joshua Keating. What Next is produced by Jason DeLeon and Mary Wilson, with help this week from Sam Lee. Thanks for everything, Sam. And I'm Henry Grabar. Talk again next week. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.